This morning, we're going to be in Philippians 4, in Philippians 4. And the last time I was up here preaching from Philippians, so I'm sure you all remember, it's just right on the tip of your mind. We finished off the section in uh, Philippians 4, 4 through 9, where Paul gives these seven quick imperatives. He gives commands at the end of his epistle, which he, which he has a habit of doing at the end of many of his epistles, commands which at first may seem to be disconnected from any foundational basis within the letter. But as we have said in the past, they actually represent ways in which to take and apply the, and apply the entirety of what has been taught in the epistle to that point. And other than the command at the very end of the book to greet every saint in Christ Jesus, that's in the closing of the letter, these are what we see in 4 through 9 are the last commands of the book. And that last section, uh, verses 8 and 9, which was my last sermon, are, are one sentence in the Greek, and therefore they're connected commands. And Paul wants his readers to see that there is a connection between the command to think about these things from verse 8 and the command to practice these things in verse 9. Indeed, Paul is saying that the living out of the type of thinking that we see in verse 8 looks like the practice of following what they have learned and received and heard and seen in Paul. So this is how we structured it last time. But unfortunately, I only ended up spending a very short amount of time on that final command in verse 9, and it really bothered me. And I think that there is an extremely important principle of Christian living contained in that verse that I would like to spend some time expanding on this morning. And as I've thought about it over the last few months, and especially after thinking more about ministering uh, to the students here, the upcoming generation, thinking about the type of world that they will be living in, and then especially after spending time with them at camp this last week, I've become even more convinced that it is more than worth our time to return to verse 9 and to really spend some time thinking about the foundational importance of a godly example in the life of every Christian. So look again at Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul closes out the major instruction of the entire book of Philippians with this call to these people that he loves so dearly to listen to what he has told them and to look at how he has lived and to put it into practice. This is the summary concluding command of the entire book. Live like I have taught you and showed you. Paul here references something that we see in many other places throughout the Bible and in his own teaching. This is the truth that the way we live our lives, our actions, our decisions, what we give our time and energy to, the really the why for our living, 
really is not something that originates within us, but is rather dependent on what we see going on around us. Godly Christian practice, as with, as with all other practice, is dependent on, on seeing it in one way or another lived out in the lives of others. The things you do, the habits you develop, may come as you learn and respond to the things that you hear and see and learn and apply from others and then kind of mix them into your pattern of living. You weigh the pros and cons of everything that you witness and experience, and then you make, va- make value-based decisions on whether or not to incorporate those things into your own life, and then furthermore, to what extent you will allow those things to influence the way you live. We are to read and study the Bible and make every effort to apply it to our lives. That is true, But the primary way that the actual application of Scripture will take place in our lives, what it will actually look like in our day-to-day living, will be heavily influenced by the way you have seen it lived out in the lives of those believers whom you are closest to. That is why the Bible makes such a big deal about following good examples and being a good example. Earlier in Philippians 3.17, Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And similarly, he tells the young pastor Titus in Titus 2.7-8, 2, 7 and 8, Show yourself in all respects, to be a good model, or to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Similarly, Peter in 1 Peter 5.3 tells elders to be examples to the flock. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 3.7 tells Christians to remember your leaders, Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. We see that pattern also in Jesus' ministry. Uh, Jesus' ministry is one of teaching and showing. The disciples seem to frequently misunderstand Jesus' teaching. So when Jesus, uh, for example, is teaching the disciples that they are to be servants, he gives them the example of washing their feet. And then he says to them in John 13, 15, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. The command to be an example and follow good examples is frequently given and implied all over Scripture. And it is because this is how we actually see and understand what it means to be an obedient Christian. Almost all of the changes that we make to our daily lives when we begin doing something new or establishing different habits, they're usually not really original. They're based off of things that we are seeing around us and applying to our own lives in varying degrees for good or bad. That is the power of example. I mentioned that one of my motivations for coming back to this verse completely has to do with my concern for how we are ministering to younger generations. 
You can really see this principle in effect in their lives, and fortunately in a lot of negative ways. Maybe you heard a few months ago that schools and parks around the country were having to close down their bathrooms as hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages were done to so many public restrooms because of a challenge on the social media app TikTok where people were challenged to share videos of themselves vandalizing bathrooms. Kids all over the country following the lead, an example of others not wanting to be outdone in mindless destruction of public restrooms, created a huge problem. Other outrageous TikTok challenges have caused dentists around the country to have to make an official statement against it because young people began using nail files to file down their teeth, doing irreversible damage to them because of a TikTok challenge. There have been reports of deaths of several young people around the world because of a TikTok challenge where people would upload videos of themselves intentionally choking themselves until they blacked out. A 10-year-old girl in Italy was found dead with her phone on and a belt around her neck trying to follow this challenge. So you can see in all of these stories over the last few years, the power of example, even in some of the craziest situations or instructions can have. Even if it's the stupidest thing, if you see people doing it, enough people doing it, it can have a motivating effect on these young people. But even though these are the types of things that make the news now, what is actually even more damaging for the younger generation is the example that is being set for them in society when they look for meaningful things to stand for and speak out against. When they decide that they want to do something with purpose or to make a difference, what is it that they see Hollywood and social media culture trying to rally them around? The last week when we were at camp, there was a time when the students were able to have a Q&A through Zoom with uh, through a Zoom call with John MacArthur. So John MacArthur's got this big picture of him on the screen behind them, and he's answering a bunch of bunch of questions for these students. And at the end of the session, one of the camp directors asked if Pastor MacArthur had a final thought that he wanted to leave these 1,200 high school students with. And so naturally, we all kind of perked up and were ready to hear just what what this wise veteran pastor is going to say to these students. What's this final thing he wants them to remember? And Pastor John leaned forward into the camera and said, climate change is a lie. It seemed like a bit of an odd way to end the session at first, and Doug and I looked at each other like, okay. You know, it was early in the morning, everyone's tired. But then he went on to explain how the world is going to come to an end in the exact way that God desires, and there's nothing we can do about it, and he implored the students not to waste their time, not to waste their lives being passionate about the causes that the world has deemed to be so important and so worthy of our energy. Instead, he said, give your lives to things that actually matter and are of eternal significance. The reason why this is such an important and relevant warning is because apart from the influence and the example of the church in the lives of these students, they would be left to believe that the things that are worth really fighting for, the things that are worth devoting their lives to, are the things that this culture is constantly telling them through songs and television and movies and college lectures and whatever any social media outlet might say is important. 
without a godly counterexample to show them that they, what they should truly live for, what, what will truly make a lasting, eternal difference, they will be in danger of following the example of people who will show them how to give their lives for that which is, at worst, rebellion against God, and at best, just worthless. If we will not show young people and new Christians what a true follower of Christ looks like through our lives, we know that there are plenty of other examples out there that have no problem showing them another way. And this is not just something that is for young people. It's not just them who need examples. This is one of the primary means that God uses to sanctify all of us. Growing in godliness, growing in Christ-likeness really is a process of us understanding what the Word of God says, how it is commanding us, and then having it explained to us more clearly from others, and seeing and hearing how it is done from faithful Christians around us. It needs to be the constant practice of every one of us to strive to live lives of exemplary discipleship while looking to the examples of other faithful Christians and patterning our lives after them. And it is to that end that we are going to spend our time this morning camped out in verse 9 of Philippians chapter 4. This command, really the final command in the book, it really is the culmination of everything that Paul has told them to do up until this point. There is a real sense in which if they can just practice these things that they have seen and heard in Paul, they will be living according to everything that he has written in this book up to this point. So the actual command here is for the reader to follow the godly example of the Apostle Paul in four different areas that he mentions in this verse. So as we look at the passage today, we want to be instructed in how we are attentive to follow godly examples in our own lives. And we are maybe able to look at this, and we're kind of able to look at some of the aspects of the life of Paul. We can emulate him to a certain extent in what we read about him in scriptures, but we definitely are not able to obey this command the same way that the Philippians were, because none of us have met Paul or seen Paul. However, we can look at this command in the same way that the author of Hebrews, from Hebrews uh, 13.7 that I shared earlier, tells us to look at faithful leaders and imitate their faith. So we can see areas of example that Paul gives us in this verse, and then we can use them to help us look to godly examples around us and think in terms of these same four areas uh, to be observing and following in others. But also, I want to make sure as we look at these four areas together, I think that it would benefit us greatly to ask hard questions about ourselves and the type of example that we are living. This is a legitimate application of the text because of what Paul said earlier in this book, where he says, join in imitating me. And he says actually again in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That means we should all be striving to live in such a way that we can honestly and without hesitation tell other Christians to look at what they have learned from us, what they have received from us, what they have heard of us and seen in us, and put those things into practice. 
This is the aim of every Christian. It's not just something that apostles or pastors should be saying. We are to imitate Paul in our ability to say these things about our own lives. And the reason this is the case is because as we look at these four words together, we will see that living and modeling these things really is the definition of basic Christian discipleship. And to be disciples and disciple makers is the whole reason that God has us here. That's why he doesn't immediately take you to heaven once you're saved. So this morning we're going to look at this verse and see the foundational importance of Christian example, both in our looking towards others for how we are to live and in looking at ourselves to make sure that our lives are those that we can point to and say, imitate me. Imitate me. You can see our four points just right there in the text. Look again at verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. The four words that Paul uses as categories of example that he is calling the Philippians to practice. We will just use those words rather than have me try to give them synonyms that have the same letter. Um, We're just going to use those words. Uh, All of the major translations translate these words exactly the same, so we'll just follow suit. So our four points today will be what you have learned, what you have received, what you have heard, and what you have seen. And it is right to think of them as separate points. It is right. Paul does not want us to think of them as just synonyms for essentially the same thing. You can see that in the language. Each word is separated by the conjunction chi, the the Greek word that's translated here as and. So he's really trying to separate them. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. It's right for us to understand Paul's deliberately thinking of four separate categories of his life and example Uh, And he wants us to see them as well. As with all of Scripture, each different word has profound meaning. So our first point, what you have learned. What you have learned. This is the first area that we need to think about when it comes to the importance of example in the Christian life. The word translated as learned uh, is is a form of the the verb manthano, And it is related to the word mathetes, which means disciple. It has to do with teaching and instructing them. So this would include the teaching that they would hear from him in a more formal public setting, teaching like this, um, but, but to a group, as he would maybe stand before the group on the Lord's Day and preach and teach. But it is also referring to more than just that. Discipling has to do with a more personal type of instruction. It's not just public teaching. It's getting into the person's life and really taking the truths of Scripture and helping to apply them to where they are and what is going on in their lives. So for a good picture of that type of ministry, turn to Acts chapter 20. Turn to Acts chapter 20 real quick. Um, Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 21. And I think that, we, that, that what Paul is talking about in, in as, as far as the word learned, we can see it here. This is where Paul is, Paul is reminding the Ephesian 
elders of the type of ministry that he had among them. Look at what he says there in verses 17 through 21. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see see that Paul lived among them. He was with them. He was a part of their lives. He wasn't just some voice on a podcast or some internet preacher. He was with them. He knew them. He knew their families. He knew their job situations, the trials they were going through. He was therefore able to get into their lives in a much more personal way. He was close enough to them that this passage says that they were able to see his tears and his trials. Probably because they were shared tears and trials. It says that he did not shrink back from declaring anything that would be profitable for them. Notice that it says that like it's understood that it would be a temptation to shrink back from instructing people in some things. If it was easy to just give yourself to the instruction of everyone for everything that would be profitable to someone, then there would be no reason to say this, but it's not. As you really get into someone's life, shrinking back from declaring everything that would be profitable does become a temptation. Because it means that you're probably going to have to say some things that are going to make them uncomfortable. It means helping to pull them out of habits and certain ways of living that they have gotten used to. They've gotten comfortable in. They don't want to change. Many times it means that you will be sacrificing the things that you want to do. Giving up your own free time, trading that time for time where you were getting yourself involved in problems and sin and trials that you would normally not even have known about. Never would have had to be involved in. But Paul doesn't shrink back from declaring anything that would be profitable for them. It says that he does this not only in his public teaching ministry, but look at what it says there. It says, from house to house. He really does get intimately involved in their lives and he instructs them right where they are, helping them to make personal application of these important truths. So think about that from that end, but now let's also turn that understanding of learning and instruction on ourselves. Is this what it looks like for you personally to follow the example of someone else when it comes to what you have learned, when it comes to your own discipleship? Do you have church members, older, more mature believers who are, who are literally, not figuratively, but literally in your kitchen? Are you inviting that kind of personal scrutiny into your life? 
It is actually quite easy for us, and, and it is a great danger for us to think that we are really serious about our spiritual growth by just surrounding ourselves with really good biblical teaching and then attempting to apply it on our own. Now, don't get me wrong, it is good for you, and it is a sign of a type of spiritual maturity for you to go to a church where the preaching and teaching is going to really dig into God's Word and will regularly bring about conviction when it comes to the way that you live your life. And it may even be great if throughout the week you are listening to podcasts and sermons from faithful Bible teachers and preachers and diligently trying to apply those to your lives. But if the limit of the instruction in your own life is merely public in nature, you are in danger of deceiving yourself into thinking you are doing better than you actually are. If this is all I'm doing, then, then, then I'm still placing myself in the position of final judge of what needs to change in me based on what I am hearing. It's actually relatively easy for me to change something in my life in response to a very convicting sermon. And I can feel really good about what I'm doing because I really am responding righteously. And I really am growing in sanctification. And I really am putting off sin and putting on righteous behavior in its place. And because I'm seeing change in my life, it is easy for me to think that I have completed the task of rightly applying this passage to my life. And I can go to bed feeling good about where I'm headed in a sanctifying way. And in so doing, I have completely forsaken God's good gift of the church in my life. I have essentially said, I am in the best position to see my own sin. I can see it the most clearly, and I can make the best judgment about what needs to be done about it as if I am actually immune from being blind or callous to my own sin. But when you have an exemplary Christian in your life, really in your life, an older, more mature Christian who is in your home, who sees how you live day to day, who knows your habits, knows your practices, someone who knows you beyond the way that you present yourself every Sunday morning at church, who knows about the things that you kind of excuse away to your husband or wife, that is when you are able to really grow. Someone who knows you well enough to tell you, even when you are really convicted over something, brother, you're kind of letting yourself off easy there. There's this other thing that's going to be really difficult for you to hear this other thing that is going to be really difficult for you to give up. Maybe there's this other thing I think you need to think about applying this to. You're so close to it that you don't see it. You need to do something about this. This is how you grow in the type of Christian that God wants you to be instead of the type of Christian that you want to be. You need that kind of Christian, that type of Christian in your life, and you need to be making yourself 
into that type of Christian for the sake of others? Are you willing to get involved in the lives of other younger Christians to help them apply the things that they're hearing from the pulpit? To not just be told to read the Bible, but to help them understand how to read the Bible. To help them see the things in their lives that they're just not seeing. There are a bunch of high school and middle school students here that need the type of instruction that this passage is talking about. They need us to be faithful in this. They need someone to not just tell them what to do, but to walk them through how to do it. To get involved in their lives, to get to know them well enough that you can ask them more personal questions that they need to be challenged on. Don't just sit back and pray general prayers for them. I mean, do that, but don't just do that. Find out what is really going on so that you can pray specifically for them and possibly be a part of of the answered prayer by helping instruct them in practical and tangible ways that they should be living. Things that you've learned and grown in. It is easy to be the type of person who just looks on at immaturity in the lives of others, almost have that Pharisee type of mindset, you know, and praise God that I'm not like that, or that my kids aren't like that. Or, oh boy, they've got something coming later on. They just don't know, you know, that type of thinking. But it's much more difficult to be the type of person that makes themselves get involved in the instruction, that puts the time and the effort into another person's life so that you can establish yourself as someone worthy of trust and then can speak in a godly, exemplary way and warn that person in such a way that it will make a real difference in their life. You can help them, give them instruction that could potentially save them from years of pain and suffering under the effects of a solitary battle with sin that doesn't have to be as difficult as it is, and you know it. And what are you going to do about it? Point two, point two, what you have Received. What you have received. Received is from the word paralambano, and it is often used to communicate the revelation of God as it is passed down. So it's it's different. This This is different than the previous term for learned because it has less to do with what Paul is personally instructing them in their lives, and it is more about what he is faithfully passing down to them from God and from others. A good understanding of what Paul is talking about here can be seen in the way uh, this term is used in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-7. If you're in Acts 20, you can flip over there real quick if you want. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-7. But listen to how Paul talks here. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-7 says, Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, 
and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. What Paul is reciting here in 1 Corinthians 15 is an early Christian creed. It's a compact statement of truth based on what the Scripture says. It's like what we confess every Sunday here in that same way. Paul is reciting an early Christian creed. He is indicating here that he has been faithful in passing along the true gospel and the true testimony of Scripture, the revelation that is truly from God. He has been faithful in doing it. He has not failed to pass it on exactly as it is, and he has not added to or subtracted from it. That is what he's saying. This is what I've received. It's as if, and this is important, it's as if he is presenting himself as a faithful link in a chain of passing down the true gospel, the true message of Scripture to the next generation of early Christians. Paul sees himself as a link in a chain from the revealed truth to where it is now passing it on with with all of the care, imagine with all of the care of a grandfather or a grandmother passing down a precious family heirloom to the next generation without damaging or corrupting it, getting out, out of this special case where it's been preserved and bringing it to the next generation. Paul is saying, you know what it is that you received from me and how careful I was to pass it on to you. And he expects them to treat it the same way and take just as much care passing it on as he did. So as we come to understand the the care with which Paul treated what he understood to be the gospel that he received, we need to have that same understanding. Looking toward the great care and concern with which older believers handle the great truths of Scripture, that should be an example to us how they're careful not to do any damage to it, to malign it or, or contextualize it in some way that contaminates the purity of it. Do you have people building into your life who treat the gospel as absolutely precious, who take care to pass it on that way, refusing to let it be compromised and checking you when you start to allow it in your thinking? Refusing to let it be compromised, misunderstood, or wrongly applied. And do you understand yourself to be a faithful link in that same chain? That's how we need to understand the gospel, the solas of the Reformation, the, the particular essential doctrines that we confess together. They've been passed down, received faithfully for thousands of years from one faithful Christian to the next. You need to see yourself there in both the receiving and the faithfully passing on of the same, of the same message, of these same truths. So what does that look like? Well, it would look like one who is never content with not having a right understanding about Christian doctrine. One who doesn't open up the London Baptist Confession and say, well, I don't really understand what's being said here, but is it really that important if I understand all of this? I don't disagree with it, so I I can see. Is it really important? 
Yes, it is. Yes, it is, because you have a responsibility to pass it down faithfully. These are the truths about what God has done for us in history. This is what faithful Christians who have carefully, meticulously studied the Bible for their entire lives, this is what they've agreed on as the most fundamental understanding of what Christians should believe and how we should live. We should have the desire to be a link in that chain. But some of us, and and I've seen it and I've heard it, can almost have the attitude that we would rather just let others focus on being the faithful link in the chain, and we're content to just kind of let the chain pass on by us and kind of just be a random link that just connects in the middle of the chain. So imagine like like a chain going down and then taking one of those carabiners and just kind of clipping it on there. It's not doing anything. It's just hanging there. It gets to be part of the chain, but nothing's dependent on it. It gets to be part of the chain, but nothing's really dependent on it. There isn't really any weight pulling in either direction. Someone who just wants to go along for the ride of Christianity, but isn't interested in really being an effective part. Just kind of riding on the coattails of the really dedicated Christians. Oh, good, I'm glad my kids are connected to this chain. That's good. Now, thinking, I don't really have to understand, as long as I'm around people who do. Well, that's good. That is where we are. That's you. If we sense any of that in us, then we need to repent of our sinful spiritual lethargy and place ourselves under the example of older, faithful Christians, one who one who really understands the preciousness of the faith that we have received and is making every effort to faithfully pass it on in an an untarnished way to the next generation. And then diligently and patiently, with much study and prayer, carefully pass it on to those who are younger in the faith than we are. So is that you? Is it your desire to make yourself a student of the Word and the true faith so that you can be entrusted to pass on what, through the kindness of God, you have graciously, graciously received? Can you pass it on faithfully? Point three, what you have heard. What you have heard. This is just a standard word for for taking something in through your ears. Not, not, nothing fancy here, but since it is distinctly set apart from the word learned, Paul here is not merely referring once again to the teaching that they have heard from him. This is something different. Most commentators understand this to be Paul calling them to practice what they have heard about him, what they have heard about him. One of the reasons for what prompted this letter in the first place was the desire of the Philippians to have an update on Paul. They want to hear what's going on in his life and his ministry. Hear how he's doing, how he's facing trials, how things are going with him. And Paul references, and you can see that throughout the letter, we've pointed it out as we've gone, Paul references some of that in this letter and has an understanding that others like Epaphroditus have shared with them what has been going on in his life and how he has handled himself. But look back at uh, 129 and 30. This is what Paul is speaking of, Philippians 129 and 30. Look. Look what he says. He says, For it has been granted to you, 
that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So here Paul is recognizing that they know the types of things that he has been dealing with. The conflicts and trials and suffering that that have been such a big part of his life recently. And he knows that they have heard about them and about how he has responded to them. So here Paul is telling them to put into practice the ways that they have heard about how he has lived in the midst of these things. Namely, how they know that he has found now reason to rejoice in all of his trials and suffering. They've heard about that. They've heard how he is dependent on God and trusts in his sovereignty. They've heard how he is constantly looking forward to the day when he is in the presence of God. They've heard it from others and they've heard it from what they're being presented in this letter. They've heard how he lives for the ministry that God has given him until such a time as God deems to take him home. And they've heard how much he loves and prays for them while he is away. They've heard all of these things about Paul. And Paul is able to confidently point to his own reputation. He's able to confidently point to his own reputation, what they're hearing about him, and say, the things that you've heard about me and how I live in the midst of trials and suffering, how you have heard that I handle these different situations and circumstances, pattern your life after that. And I want to tell you that we have those types of stories right here among the faithful in this church. This church is full of examples of people who have faced many trials, difficult trials. The sudden and unexpected death of a loved one. Disheartening health diagnoses. Various kinds of financial troubles. Almost every kind of family trial that you can think of or imagine. Troubles at work, troubles at school. Faithful Christians and regular believers who just love and trust Jesus and want to be found faithful. They actually maybe wouldn't find anything remarkable in the way that they are living and how they have walked through suffering while still striving to love and serve the church and be faithful in evangelism and discipleship. Yet their lives and actions are completely unexplainable apart from the work of God in and through them. Instead of complaining, they trust. Instead of looking for pity for themselves, they look for how to serve others. Instead of grumbling about what they've lost, they glorify God for what they've been given. They are the examples of what a life that has truly been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ will look like. The radical redefinition of priorities that is seen in lives that are defined by an inner joy that can't be quenched no matter how dark the night, no matter how thick the tears Friends, if you don't know these stories, if you don't know the people I'm talking about, if you haven't recognized these lives among you, 
then you need to dig yourself down deeper into the life of this church. Look to the reputation of these dear brothers and sisters. Listen to the stories of these precious saints who walk among you. Those who do not count their lives as their own, but joyfully live out the truth that they belong to God. And as the hymn writer says, he can can use their ransom life in any way he chooses. And you can see that they really mean it. You need to know these people. You need to talk to these people. Because when you are going through the same types of trials, it is, yes, it is helpful to know how the Bible says to respond, but it is even more helpful to additionally know someone or even several people who have already faithfully lived through it. Look to them, pattern your life after their example so that you can become the type of person who younger Christians one day can look towards and they can see your reputation and be told, have you heard about him? Heard about her, how she dealt with this. Live like she does. Do what she did. For the sake of all those who come behind us, strive to become one who has a reputation for faithfulness. One in whom a person that can barely lift their heads because of overwhelming grief or anxiety or suffering can look up and say, and say, there, there it is. That's what's required of me. And I, I serve the same God that they do. I trust the same scripture they do. I have the same Holy Spirit that they do. I can do this. I can do this. Be that type of person. Point four. Point four, what you have seen. What you have seen. Again, this is now just a... Just a straightforward word that means to perceive something by your eye. To to use your sense of vision and learn from it. And it is in this point that I want to draw our attention to the fact that Paul expects all four of these distinct areas. Look look at those areas again. Look back at verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. All four of those areas... Distinct areas, but he expects them to be communicating the same message. Yes, each of these are distinct areas. And again, the addition of the conjunction shows us that, that it's faithful to look at each one individually. But when you look at what Paul is saying about all these areas, you can understand that he believes that in what he has instructed them, what he has received, that he has faithfully handed down to them, and in what they have heard about his reputation, and in what they have actually witnessed in his life as they have known him, he believes all of those things communicate the same consistent message. In other words, Paul is confident that the way he has lived before them, when he was present with them, not only is is not a contradiction to what they have learned and received and heard, but it actually serves to reinforce the same practices that he is commanding them to adopt to their own lives. It's not a contradiction when you look at my life, it reinforces everything that I've commanded you. 
He is confident that if they would live like they saw him live, prioritize what he prioritizes, spend their time on the things they saw him spend time on, invest in the things that they see him invest in, and give instruction like he gave instruction, he is confident that if they would do these things the same way they saw him do it, they will be living in obedience to all that he has said already. They will be obedient to God and his word. These are the types of people that we are to follow after. People who we know and have seen. People who we have seen walk in the way that they have taught. So yes, glean what is good from faithful preachers and authors whose teachings are available to the public. But let your life be shaped and formed by those whose lives and fruit you can actually see with your own eyes. If I'm struggling or want help with like parenting and raising children, I'm going to go and talk to someone whose life I know, whose kids I've met and seen and watched them grow up and observed. I'm going to ask probably the Allens because I've watched them parent. I've met their kids. I know that there are things that I can learn from them. I'm not going to just trust some author or blogger who I've never met who just has kids my own age or younger, just because their ideas sound right to me doesn't mean they're any good. I mean, if the book I Kiss Dating Goodbye taught my generation anything, it should be that we would be well served to take our primary counsel from Christians who are older and more experienced and whose lives already bear out the results of what we're hoping for. When it comes to being a husband or being a parent or just being a faithful disciple, I don't want to be guided by fads. I want to be guided by faithfulness. And one of the primary reasons we need to look for the faithful examples of others to build into our lives is so that we can become the types of Christians whose actions act as a stamp of authenticity on everything we say we believe, on all of our instruction and our teaching. In the end, the way you live will have a much more powerful effect on the people around you and on your children and what you say. If you have children, that will be your legacy. You can say that Christ is most important to you. You can say that you trust in Him, that church is a priority. But in the end, it is whether or not you live like those things are true that will either contradict or punctuate everything that you've taught them. Whether your life is actually a help or a hindrance to their growth. I just shared this story with some of the youth last week, but I remember back in high school, my sophomore, junior year, I took a job delivering papers in the morning before school so that I could start saving for a car. And I remember the first time my alarm went off at five in the morning and immediately thinking, I don't need a car. <laughs> I, I came up the stairs from my room at 5 a.m. I had a terrible attitude. I was not a believer yet, still raised in a Christian home, still kind of thinking through all of these things that I'm learning. My parents are telling me, I'm walking up the stairs. But who in their right mind gets up this early? 
It's dark out still. That's, it, the world is telling me something. But as I'm walking up the stairs, I notice that the lights are already on up there. As I come up, I see my dad. His Bible is open. He's reading and studying. And that was the case for me pretty much every morning that I had that paper route throughout high school. Walking up those stairs at a time when no one in their right mind should be awake. And there's my dad with his Bible and his notebook and highlighters. It was during those high school years when I saw lots of other people my age living for worldly things and I, and I really started to really hear the arguments against God the arguments for evolution and for looking at the Bible as nothing more than, than, than man's imagination. And even though, again, I wasn't a believer yet, and I didn't know enough to have good answers for some of those things at the time, even before I was really a believer, it wasn't really all the true things that I had been faithfully taught my whole life that kept me from considering just dismissing the Bible and Christianity. Anytime I was tempted to just kind of chalk it all up to myth and just, just go ahead and live for all the stuff everyone else was, I just never could do it because I, I knew that this wasn't just something my parents were telling me. They really believed it. A consistent picture of my dad up before me and in his Bible and praying every single day, no matter what arguments I heard from the world, I, I just I could not dismiss that. There, there had to be something real there. Beloved, our lives need to add, add authenticity to the testimony of Scripture. Add weight to the truth of what we teach and pass down. Having our kids in here with us, as Bill mentioned earlier, during service, that is an opportunity for them to see the truth of what we're hopefully teaching them regularly lived out in front of them. They, they get to see us sing the songs that we sing, sometimes with tears. They, they get to see us doing this, knowing what we went through during the week, knowing the types of stuff going on in our lives. They see us, they see, they see us pray together, confess sin together, take the Lord's Supper together. They see us sit seriously under the teaching of the Word of God, taking notes because we know it's so important. They see all of that, and as they grow up and they hear every argument that the world has to throw at them for why they should abandon it all and just live for themselves, live for the pleasures of this world, they will have to take those arguments and they're going to have to weigh them against the consistent weekly testimony that they have been a part of every Sunday since they were little of just how real and important and life-changing Jesus Christ and his gospel and his church really are. It is so important that this upcoming generation sees us living as those who really believe that everything we say in the church and at home is real. Do they see us taking our own sins seriously? Do they see and hear us repenting? Do they hear us evangelizing? Do they see us discipling? Is it, is it obvious to them that our Bibles are far more important than our phones? Do they really see the church as the gift that it is? Do they just know instinctively that when the church gathers, we're there? 
Do they know it? Do they know it not just because they hear us say it, but because they see us live it? Like I know that we are all extremely concerned with where this world is headed. And we watch with dismay as the world crumbles into nonsensical rebellion against the Creator. And it's an incredibly sad reality that each coming generation is going to have to, to face more difficult persecution for holding to the truth than the last one. And this reality is actually is made even more difficult, it's, more, it's even worse by the fact that the coming generations are also going to have far more to distract them from what is true and right and eternal. More things to distract them and pull them away than any of us ever had. And these kids sitting in here with us today, if God is kind enough to save them, they're going to face more difficulties, more persecutions, more hardships for their faith than we have had to. So what will we do about that? How are we going to prepare them for it? Beloved, in light of this reality, can I just implore you to not move away from what the biblical strategy for living in times of distress has always been. What we need most and what the next generation of Christians need most, what our children need most, is for us to commit to the foundational importance of following godly examples and becoming godly examples. We don't need a bunch of new strategies for engaging the culture. We don't need a bunch of unstoppable arguments to war against the culture. We don't need a place to hide from the culture. We need a community of people who live faithfully in the culture, whose lives match what they teach, what they say, who live as faithful links in a chain of teaching that has been faithfully passed down from the earliest Christian generations until now. The promise that Paul closes this verse with, look again at it, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The promise that Paul closes with indicates that this is exactly what we need in this time and as it gets more difficult and as we face more trouble and more strife. The term God of peace is used often by Paul in context where there is strife and unrest as a reminder to the believers. This is how you know the God of peace. Just be faithful as we live amongst those who hate what we believe, and as we walk through various trials, some, some related to our faith, and some that are just a part of living in a fallen world, if we will think the way that we are told to in verse 8, and if we will just practice the things that we see and hear from godly men and women around us, then we have the promise that the God of peace will be with us. This time, this culture, this context, where the world is right now, this is where God has called us to be. This is how, where He has called us to live. This is the con cultural context that Grace Church exists in. And what He has called us to in this context 
is the same calling for every Christian walking through difficult times. And it is this, pattern your life after godly examples as they show you what it means to live out the truth of Scripture. And then strive to live in a way that is worthy of the emulation of others. The culture may have become more callous and complicated, but the strategy still is that simple. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word and its instruction. We are so thankful for, for the gift of, of godly examples. I personally am so thankful for all of the men and women in this church who, who lift up a godly example to follow after, to look to. And I can be confident, that we can be confident that, that no matter what we face, if we are diligent to look around and look up at others, we can, we can see what faithfulness looks like. Lord, I pray, I pray for us as a church. I pray that we would be committed to this, committed to what discipleship really looks like, that we would not abandon in any way the next generation to the examples, the teaching, the thinking of this world, but that we would commit ourselves to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We would long to be able to tell them. We would grow in such a way that we can tell them, follow me as I follow Christ. Lord, make that the description of Grace Church in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.